energy. So the barber trims my beard all nice, like an artist. Now, I didn't tell him to do that. I wanted the beard gone. So then I went home and shaved it off completely after I was done. I felt horrible. The passion. Rafael Devers is the biggest contract in franchise history. He needs to be a leader for this Red Sox team. The opinions on all your favorite teams. Are the Patriots close to playoff contention? Yes. Are they close to Super Bowl contention? Hell no. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. What's up, everybody? Happy Tournament Monday here on the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. We have a ton to get to. Luckily, we have all 90 minutes to do it. We're going to talk about UVM hoops a lot today, both men and women. We know the men have a 15 seed. They're off to Columbus to take on Marquette. We know the women have a 15 seed. They're off on Saturday to stores to take on legendary program, program UConn. So Catamounts and Golden Eagles on the men's side on Friday. Catamounts and Huskies on the women's side on Saturday at 3. Going to be an epic couple of days as we get ready for it. And then an epic weekend as well. We're going to be joined by UVM men's hoop star Aaron Deloney, the sixth man of the year in the America East Conference. He'll be with us at about 6.15. And we do have a great week of coverage already lined up here for both the men and the women. We've got a couple of interviews already set, and we got a couple more in the hopper as well. So it's also, by the way, in non-UVM news, day one of the NFL's legal tampering period. We've already got a lot of big news on the NFL free agency front. We'll get you in to that as well. You can get in 802-585-3026. That's the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Your locally owned Napa stores in Waterbury and Morrisville. The show is brought to you by Fecto Homes. Five, four, three, two, one. And here we go. The opening thoughts on the Brady Farkas Show are brought to you by Sticks and Stuff and Swanton Lumber, Vermont's most complete locally owned home center. Locations in Enosburg, Derby, Middlesex, St. Albans, and at Swanton Lumber. They're online at sticksandstuff.com. What the UVM men and the UVM women have done is incredibly impressive. Now, they're impressive in different ways. They are It's not a competition as to what is more impressive. They are both incredibly impressive, but they are impressive in a multitude of ways. And it's not just getting to the tournament. That's impressive, too. It's not just getting to the tournament, though. It's what these two programs have done. Let me start with the men. The men have now been to the America East Championship game in seven of the last eight years. They have now been to the NCAA tournament four times in that same period. It is really, really hard to stay at the top of a conference. You think about this. This is nearly a decade of dominance for the Catamount men. We like to think that once you get going, you kind of just run on autopilot as a program. That's not true. You always have to work to maintain, and it is not easy to do that. Look around the mid-major landscape, and college basketball is littered with programs that had a really good run and then weren't able to maintain it. 
Siena had a pretty good run for a couple of years. UAlbany in this conference had a good run for a couple of years. In a bigger league, Butler had a good run for a few years. Wichita State, none of those teams are in the tournament this year. How about some of your favorite tournament darlings like Florida Gulf Coast or St. Peter's even from last year? They're not in this field either. It's really hard to maintain success. And this program has done it. And they're in eight years, seven America's tournament finals appearances. UVM is always there and they are always there at the top. Man, this run, staying at the top of the mountain, that is incredibly special. And it's incredibly difficult to do. Players leave, transfer portal, coaches leave, teams enter the conference, everybody gives you their best shot. Every year, there's a new challenge, and every year, this program finds a way to meet it. And with the transfer portal in play, it's harder than ever to repeat success. And this program finds a way to do it other teams now can bring in players very very easily and they can turn something very very quickly it's harder than ever to keep a stranglehold on a conference it's also harder than ever for a program to keep its own players from transferring not only do you have to bring in great players year in and year out regular recruiting you have to keep your own players happy year in and year out there's a lot of difficulty in that. There's a lot of pressure in that. And this program has found a way to do it. Do not take for granted what the UVM men do. Staying at the top of a mountain is really, really hard. Okay, The systems are designed for teams to, to be interchangeable. Right? Now, that's more the case in the pros than in college, of course. But... In college now, with the transfer portal and these programs having relatively equal funding, there should be a challenger to UVM, and there hasn't been. Staying at the top should be celebrated, and I attribute a lot of the success and a lot of the stability to John Becker. His decision to stay has absolutely helped this program stay right at the top every year. It probably is the biggest factor in the Catamounts' continued run of success. Having him every year is probably the biggest factor. So often at mid-majors, successful coaches leave or the team moves conferences, and that throws everything out of whack. But this program has had stability because of leadership in the athletic administration staying in place, but also leadership within their basketball program staying in place. Yeah, it's really cool. It's really cool, you know, and... and um... Part of that is most guys don't, you know, most guys that have success don't stick around a program in, in the American East, you know, and and, um, um, and I have, and I'm really happy I have. Virginia says Becker's leaving. You heard it here first. I don't think he is. And we can debate that, but I don't think Becker's leaving. There was a time where I thought he was going to. There was a time where I thought he wanted to. I had heard that he wanted to. Now I don't think it's going to happen. I think he is going to stay here. And this program, once again, will have the chance to stay at the top of the mountain. That's really hard. It should be celebrated. It should not be taken for granted. But you know what else is special? What's special it also is what the UVM women are doing. 
I'm not here to compare the two. It's not a competition of what is more impressive. But what the UVM women have done is also incredibly impressive and also should be celebrated. Maintaining success is really hard, but building success is really hard too. Staying at the top of the mountain is really hard, but just climbing the mountain is really, really hard as well. And that's what the UVM women have done. I've said it for weeks now that their run kind of hits differently because it's new, and that's true. As hard as it is to maintain and repeat success, it's also hard to overcome your program's previous failures, put them behind you, and then elevate the program. And that's what this group has done. You look at the UVM women. The UVM women last got into the NCAA tournament in 2010. After that, the program proceeded to have 10 consecutive, not one, not two, not three, but 10 consecutive losing seasons. And that streak only got broken by a four and two season during the COVID year in which the program had to cancel their rest of their season because it was just too much for them. So really, 11 years of nothingness for the program, and then last year they win 20 games, and then this year they're back on the national scene. That grind, that will, that ability to build, that cannot be discounted because that is really hard also. To have a coach that is able to come in in Elisa Kresge and change a culture, that's special. To have a class of players that was fully recruited, knowing that the program has been down on its luck for a decade, that is special. To have those players still come in and have them seek to be the group that changes things, that is special. And that gets me feeling like some type of way because I know how hard it is. Right, like I was on a team in college that went one in seventeen my junior year in the league. One in seventeen. We were horrible. And we had been horrible for my first two years. Also. Like two and sixteen or you know, three and fourteen. We were atrocious within our own league. Last place every year. We got a new coach my senior year. We just started building. And we finished, I think, eight and ten in the league my senior year. And I could not have been more thrilled just to go eight and ten and just to have been a part of the group that started to change the culture i can only imagine what these upperclassmen are feeling and the pride that they have having taken a program that was under 500 for 10 straight years and now getting them back to national prominence and getting them to the ncaa tournament i can only imagine for emma utterback and for delaney richardson and for Anna Olson, these juniors and seniors, to have been the foundation of this turnaround, I don't know if you can beat that. This program is ascending, and it's ascending quickly. And the reason it's ascending is because of this coaching staff and their vision in Elisa Kresge and their vision of changing the culture. And these program and these players, rather, these upperclassmen and their real life application of that vision. They've come in and they've done it and they've done it largely together 
and that is special. Listen to Elisa Kresge after the game on Friday. Well, there's definitely been a shift in the culture here. Players are bought in to, to doing it the right way and working hard. Um, that nothing's going to be handed to you. you got to work really hard. And I felt like that in the summer. We had a group that was in the gym more than I've ever seen. Um, and it starts there. And they truly loved each other. They were doing absolutely everything together. So there was just something special about the way they interacted and how they worked hard. And Yeah, you hear about this team. They, you, know, you hear about Kresge say they have this team that had their backs back in the summer. They made a commitment to making all of this a reality. They worked harder than any group she's been with. That's special. And then you heard Emma Utterback talk about reliving her commitment. Um, I just want to say, first and foremost, I – couldn't have wanted to do this with any other team. Um, when I came here on my visit and I met the coaching staff, I had a feeling that this was going to happen eventually because of the type of people they were. They were going to bring the best out of anyone that came into their program. And when you bring the best out of everyone on a, on a team, there's no doubt that you can get these types of championships credit to elisa kresge for having a presence to sell kids on that vision and and credit to players like emma utterback for having the ability and the willingness to execute that vision when you get a chance to be the first team to do something man that that is special i told you i was a part of a team the first team to just go eight and ten in a long time i can only imagine the pride in being at the forefront of this program's turnaround. This coaching staff, these upperclassmen, they're at the forefront. So what the UVM men have done, maintaining success every year, taking on all challengers, right? Albany was a challenger. Stony Brook was a challenger. Bryant's a challenger. UMBC was a challenger. UVM has taken on all of them, and they have largely succeeded. Staying at the top of the mountain deserves to be celebrated because it's really, really lonely at the top, and it's really hard to stay there. But what the UVM women have done, starting at ground zero from 10 years' worth of stench and then working your way up methodically, with this coaching staff and these upperclassmen as leaders, and now getting to the top of the mountain, that's pretty special, too. UVM men against Marquette, 245 on Friday, which means we'll be able to recap the game right as we get on the air on Friday. UVM women, 3 o'clock against UConn on Saturday uh, in UConn. Texter says, go UVM women. I worked 26 years in Connecticut as an airport manager. I coordinated numerous UConn national championships at that airport. Would be nice to send the Huskies home. Texter says, the Holy Cross job pays 750000 Becker makes like 300000 You wouldn't leave for a, you know, double and a half salary. It doesn't matter what I would do, and it doesn't matter the money. I feel like John Becker is going to stay, right? I feel like John Becker is going to stay. And I don't know how true this is, but you hear it through the grapevine that given the allegations of players in the program, you know, given the sexual assault allegations against Anthony Lamb that are out there, that Becker doesn't have the same luster to other programs, but that he is safe here. 
That that is the rumor on the street. I cannot tell you that that is true, and I can't even tell you that I have an opinion on that because I don't know what Becker's ultimate motivations are. But there was a time where I thought John Becker was going to leave and a time where John Becker was getting offers to leave or at least getting interest to leave, and he has not gotten those in the last couple of years. And I have, you know, I've seen on social media and I've had people tell me, but I cannot tell you what's true, that he is kind of radioactive to other places, but he's not radioactive here. That's that's scuttle. That's not coming from me as a fact, but that is what people out there are saying, including some people that do have a good idea about some of this stuff. We'll leave it at that. It's the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Saturday, Catamounts got to the tournament, punched their ticket by beating UMass Lowell. Every single week in the NFL season, we unpack the Pats. Well, how about we unpack the Cats? My takeaway from Saturday's America East title game. That's next on the Brady Farkas Show, brought to you by Fecto Homes on WDEV. Make your opinion heard by texting onto the Brady Farkas Show at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. So the UVM men beat UMass Lowell on Saturday, 72-59. to In doing so, they win the America East Championship. I want to talk a little bit about the game. We'll unpack the Cats here. Every NFL season, remember every day after Patriots game, we unpack the Pats. Well, this is unpacking the Cats. Cue the music. Number one. I am extremely disappointed in what I believe to be security at Patrick Jim. I am not 1,000% positive, but I'm pretty sure this was a security thing. After the Cats won, nobody but the players rushed the court. Nobody. The team rushed the court. They were at center court celebrating by themselves, and it looked kind of awkward. Why was the community not out there with them? I'm going to assume it's because they were not allowed to be. And look, I get the perils of court storming, and I get the injury risk associated with it. Generally, I can get behind not storming the court, but this was a title game. There was a way to let people on the court to celebrate with their team and have it be done responsibly. Responsibly. This is when rushing on the court should be allowed. I'm not advocating for people to jump over barriers and go from row six down to the court. I'm not advocating for that. But letting the community bask in the joy with this team, letting this team bask in their joy with the community, that would have been okay. We've talked forever about the crowd dynamics at UVM games. We've talked about how to get younger people and all of that. Well, the players should have been allowed to have a little bit of fun with their classmates. The 10-year-old and his father in the crowd should have been allowed to give that 10-year-old a memory, and they weren't. Instead, the team is jumping at center court with them, their coaching staff, the media out there, and then their parents eventually sauntering onto the court after. This should have been able to be a celebration, and it should have been able to look like other tournaments look when they're played on their home floor. Like other big games play, or you know, other big games look when they're played on their home floor. 
I did not like that. It would have been a cooler environment had everybody been allowed to rush the court. Again, you could do it safely. You could do it responsibly. You could do it without danger. And Patrick Jim, that holds 3,000 fans, a lot of which are older and aren't going to do this, is not going to look like a football stadium with 100,000 people where everybody's going out and stampeding everybody. We want to get the environment better at these games. Well, let them look like college games are supposed to look and let these kids share in the moment with their fans and with their classmates and with their peers and let their peers do the same. I did not enjoy that. As for the game itself, shout out to the Catamount coaching staff in the second half. They made an adjustment in that second half, which was critical. And I wonder how many people really picked up on it. In the second half, UVM started having Robin Duncan initiate the offense. Robin Duncan, the team's center, played point guard in the second half, and that was the key to the Catamount offense being unlocked in the second half. In the first half, UVM played it like they always do. Dylan Penn was the point guard, Finn Sullivan the shooting guard, and I felt like the Cats were just kind of standing around waiting for Dylan Penn to make a play. I thought they were just kind of waiting for him to take over. John Becker told me afterwards that wasn't quite the case. Lowell was switching everything and kind of forced it to look that way. So fine, that's true. But nonetheless, the first half offense for UVM was very, very stagnant. In the second half, Robin Duncan got the ball in his hands. It forced UMass Lowell's center to come out and guard him. And with that in play, the rest of the lane was opened up more for other Catamount players to go towards the basket. And we can get the ball going towards the hoop. You can create layups and you can create help situations where you can kick out for threes. And UVM started to hit a lot more threes in the second half than they did in the first. Duncan also had the ball in his hands a lot. Played down in the post, drew a double team, and found several open shooters for kickout threes. Robin Duncan in the second half took that game over. Not in the stat sheet, but in terms of how he played with the ball in his hands. Um, so the decision at halftime, one of the tactical things we did was put Robin on the ball so they had to guard him and for the first action, and then we could could play off that. And if, if we got into the possession, we then wanted to get robbing the ball back kind of in the middle of court where again he could get into another action um if he got caught in the perimeter and they weren't guarding him he needed to just do what we've been doing and if the ball comes to him just quickly get into throw ahead you know screen or and then screen or dribble handoff and so he started to do that better did that in the second half they gave him a chance to do it in the second half that was a huge huge decision and it really worked to the benefit of uvm's offense three I want to give a shout-out, a big one to Aaron Deloney. Deloney's going to be with us here in about 20 minutes at about 6.15. He hit one of the biggest shots in this game. When you think about where the game turned, think about the shot Aaron Deloney hit right before halftime. UVM was down 29-22. The offense was at a lull. They couldn't get anything going. UMass Lowell was starting to take control. With 15 seconds or so, Deloney pulls up from well behind the line and hits a three. We go into the half with UVM down four with a little momentum instead of down seven. It gave UVM a, a you know, not as big a deficit, but a little bit of momentum, a little bit of confidence, and it set the stage for what we saw in the second half. Number four, 
credit to some of the guys on the bench. They don't get as much credit as they should. They don't score as much outside of Deloney, but they were absolutely huge as well in that win on Saturday. Aliri Iofalier played big minutes. He is a guy who got some big rebounds. He's super athletic. He could play against Koulibaly down low. He can leap for a rebound. He had a couple of buckets. He got to the free throw line, as I recall. Enjoy watching Aliri Iofalier's defensive ability throughout the season as well as his offensive growth he we talked a lot on friday and saturday at the special broadcast about rebounding and about umass lowell's size Illyria iofalier has been that guy that's been able to provide rebounding and size he did it saturday nick fiorillo the same thing he came back from injury no he hasn't been scoring a lot but he's absolutely provided minutes for this team he's provided depth at the five position for this team he also look he gave some fouls. He got some rebounds. He's a good passer. He got some shots. He didn't hit them on the outside, but he gave this team valuable minutes as well. We talked all preseason about how this team did not have a lot of size and how that was really, really hurting them. Well, Robin Duncan became their big man, and being able to rotate in, Iofalier and Fiorillo definitely kept him out of foul trouble and allowed him to do what he did offensively in the second half. Big performance there from Iofalier and from Fiorillo. Deloney scored 10 points. He was big off the bench. And TJ Hurley played some valuable minutes as well. And look, this was a team effort. Four players were in double figures. Three of them were starters. So I know the starters are going to get a bunch of the credit and they deserve it. But this was a team effort. Guys on the bench who came in, took fouls, gave breathers. And they held this team to 59 points. Right? 59 points. UMass Lowell scored 80-plus on UVM twice. They scored 59 on Saturday. That is a team effort. That is keeping people fresh. The bench mob for UVM deserves some credit for that as well. Cats taking on Marquette, and that's coming up on Friday at 245. We are doing our diligence here on uh, on Marquette. we got a bunch of insiders coming on throughout the next couple of days live and on the podcast channel and uh, some people who you'll be interested to hear from starting as early as tomorrow. But uh, definitely tomorrow, Thursday, Friday, or, or tomorrow, Wednesday, Thursday, we'll have some stuff on Marquette. Glenn in Middlebury says, agree with you, Brady, about the crowd. I was watching the game on my iPad at work. Weird to see the crowd not be able to react. It seemed anticlimactic. I completely agree with you, Glenn. Again, you can do it safely. You can do it responsibly. I don't even think you have to rush. You don't have to run on the court if you don't want to. But let them out there to celebrate with their with their friends, with their community, with their peers. That That's what college is all about. And UVM, I don't think, permitted that. It looked, as Glenn said, anticlimactic. Breaking news on the Vermont high school front. We'll tell you this big decision by the VPA. We'll do it next on DEV. Want Brady to hear your opinion on the sports stories of the day? Text in at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Aaron Deloney, the UVM men's basketball standout, is going to be with us here in about 10 minutes. I've got a couple of texts on UVM more that I want to read. I do want to give you this breaking news, though, and let me set this up. Do you remember last week, maybe it was two weeks ago, we had the news story as part of the morning, midday, and afternoon news service that 
Mid-Vermont Christian, which is a small private school in Hartford, Vermont. Mid-Vermont Christian had pulled itself out of the VPA tournament, right? In the, the girls' basketball tournament. They had forfeited their first-round matchup against Long Trail. And the reason being is that Long Trail had a transgender player on its roster. Mid-Vermont Christian was scheduled to play Long Trail. Long Trail had a transgender player. Long Trail forfeited and said, we're not going to do that. Well, now, I believe this is today, just moments ago, or within the last hour, I should say, the VPA has now said that Mid-Vermont Christian is ineligible to participate in VPA-sanctioned activities. So that is where we are at. The VPA has said, you cannot be part of things that we sanction to Mid-Vermont Christian. Mid-Vermont Christian says, we're not going to play. They forfeit. And now the VPA is saying, Mid-Vermont Christian, you cannot play. And they say that the school's actions do not meet the expectations of the VPA's first and second policy, commitment to racial, gender, fair, and disability awareness, and policy of gender identity, respectively. That's where we're at. 802-585-3026. There is a discussion, of course there is, about whether or not transgender players should be allowed on female teams, right? They're having this debate in places and athletic programs all over the country about whether biological males should be allowed to play on girls' teams. I am not going to have that debate. We are not going to be talking about that today. The thing I wonder, and I am not even saying the VPA's ruling today is wrong. The thing that I wonder is I just want to know who exactly at Mid-Vermont Christian feels that playing against a transgender is inappropriate. Because that's a question that I need to know before I can make a judgment on what the VPA has done. Does that make sense? Because if you told me that, and these are all hypotheticals, if you told me that all of the players on Mid-Vermont Christian were okay with playing against a transgender and only the coach was not, well, then I would just ask, can we just get rid of the coach and we don't have to ban the school and punish the players? If you told me that all the players were against playing, well, then I'd feel a different way. If you told me that everybody involved is okay playing against a transgender, but only the admitted, the principal of the school is not, well, then I'd say, can we get a new principal? Like, I would just, I'm wondering, do all of the players now and in the future have to be punished for this? Or are they the ones who had the problem with it? I, I don't know the answer to that. So I'm going to leave the discussion at that. You can get in on the Napa Morrisville, Napa Waterbury text line. Texter says, thanks for not debating this. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm, that's not a, a conversation that we need to have right now. And we've got Aaron Deloney here waiting uh, in a moment. But my question just is, I just want to know who at Mid-Vermont Christian is not okay with this. Because that will frame how I would feel about the VPA. That's the question that I am asking. If everybody involved is okay with playing against a transgender player, well, except for one person, do we have to punish everybody now and in the future? That I don't know. So 
more on this might come out. It might not. But uh, those are the questions I would ask before I shape my opinion. All right, back to UVM. Dan in Jericho with a good question. Brady, why are the UVM women playing in stores Connecticut on at the home of UConn? What happened to neutral site games? It is a good question. The women's tournament, the women's NCAA tournament is operated differently. Right? Men's tournament, all the games are at neutral sites. Women's tournament, that's not the case. The top 16 seeds in the women's tournament host the first and second round. So basically all of the one through four seeds in the women's tournament have the first and second round on their campus in their gym. And I, I don't know for a fact, I believe that that is done to increase attendance, that if there are more games at home sites, games are, or, or home sites of good teams that there are going to be better attended games, right? Like think about the America East Championship on uh, on Saturday. UVM, the men and the women on Friday, play the whole regular season for a reward. The reward is you get to play in the home game there in the conference final. Well, the top 16 seeds in the country, top 16 teams in the country, all play for something all year, and that one of their rewards is getting to play at home. And the NCAA gets a better chance for the best teams to advance in the tournament. I know we all love upsets, but the NCAA rewards its teams that were good in the regular season by giving them a better chance to move forward and also likely increase attendance, right? A UConn and UVM game played in Kansas City might not be that well attended, but a UConn-UVM game played at UConn is going to be well attended, and that is a reward to those really good teams as well. Texter says that sounds like a raw deal for the lower seed. Well, yeah, isn't that kind of the point? Right? Your regular season is supposed to matter, is it not? So if your regular season matters, you're rewarding the really good teams in the league. You earn the right to have games played on your home court. So I don't really have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with it at all, actually. Uh, One local tie-in to this game also is uh, Morgan Valley, the Vermont native who starred at Rice, She is the associate head coach at UConn. She played at UConn, was on national championship winning teams at UConn, and now she'll get a chance to take on a team from her home state. So we're going to try to get in touch with Morgan Valley this week as well. And Morgan Valley is, by the way, being inducted into this year's VPA or a Vermont Sports Hall of Fame. So uh, it would be a good tie-in there. Ryan in Burlington. Brady, the men got a 15 seed, question mark. Shouldn't the team's success over the last few years have elevated them? There's kind of two separate points going here. Let me start with the first one. A 15 seed is appropriate for this team. Okay, that's what we said they would be months ago if they got in the tournament. That's where they are. A 15 seed is appropriate. This Vermont team won a league that was ranked in the bottom third of all leagues in the country, right? There's 32 full leagues in the NCAA. The America East is ranked the 21st highest RPI. So UVM won at best an average league and more often than not a bad league. So winning a bad league doesn't get you a whole lot of favors on the seeding line. And then UVM didn't win any good conference any good non-conference games and in fact they dropped some non-conference games that probably hurt them as well 
UVM didn't beat USC, who's a tournament team. That would have helped in seeding. They didn't beat St. Mary's. That's a tournament team. That win would have helped. They didn't get it. They got smoked by Iona, who's a tournament team. They got beat by Toledo. They got beat by Yale. Those were two non-conference teams that won their league's regular season. UVM got beat by both of them, and they got beat soundly by both of them. The only win against the tournament team UVM had was against another 15 seed in Colgate, and they only beat them by a point. So you start looking through the non-conference schedule, UVM didn't get any wins against the really good non-conference teams on their schedule except for Colgate, who they beat by a point. And then you go further, they lost to Ball State, who is in a, a, a four seed or whatever in its conference tournament, so average. Cal State Fullerton, a four seed in its conference tournament, so average. They got beat by UNC Wilmington, and they got crushed by Long Beach State, who was like 17 and 16. So that should paint the picture here. UVM didn't deserve better than a 15. It's not that UVM isn't good. They are. It's not that UVM hasn't gotten better since the non-conference. They have. But as far as seeding is concerned, the damage was done way back in November and December, and that's just a fact. When you lose, we talked all offseason about how the non-conference schedule could elevate them in the seed line. That's true if you do well. But if you play as poorly as UVM did, it's going to hurt you. You didn't win any of the good non-conference games you had, and you lost a couple that maybe you shouldn't have lost. It's a Long Beach State team that didn't end up being very good. So that's how you end up on the 15 line no signature wins and a couple of bad losses along the way as well you start out two and seven we we knew they were destined for a 15 or a 16 seed three months ago and that's exactly where they end up as for the question and aaron deloney is going to be with us here in about two minutes as for the question of you know shouldn't what you've done in the past matter no it shouldn't and i'm sorry to tell you that look i'd love to be a homer with you on this one but i can't the tournament is based off of what have you done this year. This is not a lifetime achievement tournament. UVM has been good in the past. That is true. Those teams, though, they are in the past. Those tournaments, they are in the past. So just because you've been good in the past doesn't afford you favors in this tournament, as far as I'm concerned. This team deserved a 15 seed. Other teams deserved a 13 seed. Right again, and it's not a lifetime achievement award when you get seated. Is what have you done? It is what have you done this year? And this team's resume was that of a 15 seed, and now as a result, they have a very hard matchup in round one against Marquette. And we're going to spend the next couple of days trying to figure out if they could pull off a massive upset. But just because they've been good in the past does not mean that they deserve special treatment here on the seating line. So it is the Brady Farkas show brought to you by Fecto Homes on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Catamounts and Marquette, Friday at 245. And one of the key pieces of this UVM team is Aaron Deloney. Aaron Deloney, the sixth man of the year for the second consecutive year inside the America East Conference. Ten points in the conference title game. A couple of big threes on uh, Saturday against UMass Lowell. And he's joining us now, I believe, from the gym where he's just out of practice. And Aaron, thanks for being with us, man. Congratulations. And how are you? I'm really good, man. Thanks for having me. 
Well, I appreciate you being with us. Uh, you guys had to sweat it out last night. Last team announced in the field. What was uh, what was going through your mind as the teams are coming off the list last night? Yeah, there was so much, so much anxiety and butterflies through all of our stomachs, man. Because last year, I think we were like either second uh, before like the first or second commercial. So we got it. We got our name out there pretty early. So last night we had to wait around for it, and there was so much more nerves built up. But uh, I was glad our name got called at the end. You know, so you're going to Columbus 245 on Friday. Last year, you guys played with Arkansas, played tight with them, losing by just four. How does that experience help you? What knowledge do you bring from last year to this year? A lot. You know, got a chance to play in front of a really big uh, crowd in a very loud stadium, um, some bigger guys in different competitions. So just going back and looking through that film, we can definitely uh, learn some things from that. How much better is this team now? than the one we saw in November and December. How much have you grown? So much. Um, I could talk about it forever. Um, just yesterday night, actually, me and Robin, we went back and watched our first game of the season against Brown and some of those earlier games. And it was so crazy just to see, like, like man, what were we running back then? What were we doing on defense? Like, look look how we're moving. So I think we improved so much, man, defensively and offensively. So, so fun to see. You know, I've been really impressed by you and kind of your journey this year. 32 points on opening night. Then you went through, weren't playing as much, go to the bench, embrace that role, went through a pretty significant shooting lull, especially at the beginning of conference play. But then you get out of it, double-digit machine every night, it seems like, 10 in the Americas final. Talk to me a little bit about the mental toughness for you and just the kind of the battle this year for you mentally. Um, yeah, I knew, like, I, I had a big role coming in, and uh, I was going to be a leader and a guy that, you know, a lot of people looked at and looked upon to score. Um Especially as a senior, you know, you know, in a program like this, uh, it's important that you fight things out, you know, whether that's an injury or uh, shooting struggles. Um, it was just important that I, you know, stuck with it and continued to get better and just fight through everything that came my way. You know, Coach Becker talked on Saturday after the game about you embracing the bench role. Um, what was it like at the beginning of the year when you go from being a starter to coming off the bench? It sounded like it was more of a collaborative decision rather yeah. than a, a, quote, punishment. Yeah, definitely. You know, I definitely didn't look at it, look at it as a punishment. As I said before, you know, Coach Becker, his resume speaks for itself. You know, so when a coach like that comes to and goes like, "You're one of our best players," and um, like, how would you feel coming off the bench? I just told him, you know, whatever the team needs, and you know, it was successful last year, and uh, I felt like I could do it again. You know, it's hard, you know, coming off the bench when there's already a, a rhythm to the game and you're kind of coming in cold, but. I know if anybody was able to do it and thrive in that role, it would be me. So I was fine with it. You know, I can't promise I'm going to press the right buttons and I don't know how the quality is going to sound, but I want to play this for you anyways because I don't know if these clips got to you over the weekend on social media, but I posted some audio of Coach Becker talking yeah, about I you. Have a few of those. Well, I'm going to play this one for you and ask for your reaction. Yeah. Yeah, I, I got a real soft spot for that kid. <laughs> um, he's unbelievable. Like, he's... Like he's got the flash and the swag, like you see it. Like, but he's just one of the toughest kids I've ever coached. He has an abscessed tooth. He was supposed to get a root canal two days ago between the semifinals and this game. He's chewing on ice the last three days just to, to try to numb it. Um, he's never missed a practice. He's a small, one of the smallest guys we've ever had here. He's banged up all the time. He refuses to miss a practice. Talk to me a little bit about the pain you're playing through right now with the tooth, and uh, what does it mean to you to hear Coach Becker talk about you in that way? Everything you said there is true, man. I, I don't really talk about my injuries or try to make excuses about how I'm feeling or anything. If I'm if I'm on the court, you know, I'm, I'm going to play. 
And um, yeah, uh, after the Binghamton semifinal game, a tooth was it, was it was really bad. And that night, actually, it's, this swole up right here. So this like was almost out to there and I, I couldn't sleep. I didn't go to bed till like six wow. that night after the game and um, end up calling Gino at like seven in the morning after sleeping for maybe 30 minutes or an hour. Uh, rushed to the emergency room where Coach Hyde and Gino came and uh, kind of took care of me. But the pain, the pain was just crazy. Um, ben, actually, one of our managers, he came over and stayed with me one of those nights and told me I was like crying in my sleep. And I don't even remember. But yeah, the pain was crazy. I was just able um, able to get through. You know, I was chewing on ice during practice. Uh, it, it was a really long week, but I'm, I'm glad that I got through it. What does it mean to hear Coach Becker talk about you, your toughness like that? He talked about you kind of being a coach in the huddle. Just uh, his praise, how much did that mean? You know, it feels great, you know, that that, uh, that that's being talked about about me. That's something I, uh, you know, embody toughness, you know, playing through things, especially hearing it from Coach Becker. You know, he's such a good coach, everything he stands for, all the accomplishments he has, um, especially after him not getting – the coach of the uh, year award, you know, I think that gave us more motivation too, uh, coming into these games, but it means a lot coming out of his mouth and, uh, appreciate him for that. Aaron Deloney, UVM men's basketball standout with us here on the Brady Farkas show. Catamounts, the America East champions yet again, they'll take on Marquette in the 15 and two matchup on Friday afternoon at two 45. Uh, you know, I went back and I thought about the game on Saturday and I think one of the big turning points of the game was your three right before the end of the first yeah. half. Yeah, you guys are Everybody down. That. You guys are down seven at that point. You pull up from four or five feet behind the line, hit a three, end up down four. How big was it as you look back? Yeah, I mean it was really big. We were in a slump. You know, we couldn't didn't uh, have many shots going up until that point. We only had twenty two points, I think. Yeah, know, going through the half, and you know, UMass Lowell, they were they had a lot of energy. Uh, they were talking. They were they were out there flying around. The bigs were, were screaming. So, and I think I missed like two or three shots going up into that point. I was like, I got to get another one up because like it's going to go in. That's the law of averages. So uh, I got a good look at the three, just raised up and then knocked it out. It felt good. And I heard the crowd at that point. And I was like, all right, we, we're, we're back in this thing. Here we go. You know, I was talking earlier in the show about what the women's team has done and how impressive it is to build something and right. kind of reach the pinnacle for the first time. Equally as impressive is a group that's able to maintain success. Talk to me about the battle for you guys to maintain success. Um, I think it's definitely tough. Like, there's a chip on your shoulder um, every time you go into a game and you like the team to beat. Coach Becker talks about all the time how whoever we play, it's that team's Super Bowl for them, you know? They're coming in uh, guns blazing. So um, it's hard, but it's something, you know, that we've we've done really well with and something we just got to continue to do. You know, I know this isn't really the time for this, but I don't know when I'll ask get a chance to talk to you again, so I'm going to ask anyways. You are a senior, but you have another year left. Do you know if you're coming back next year or not yet? I'm not sure. I'm kind of focused on getting the tourney win right yeah. now. That's all that's on my mind, and uh, when that ends – Hopefully, I can figure that out and get that piece down. We'll figure. We'll finish up here with a little rapid fire, as is typical. I asked you the first time we spoke this year if anybody on the team could beat you in a jump shooting contest. You said no. Dylan Penn said he would take you over TJ Hurley, but maybe I should come back to him in two or three years. He might change his answer. Will TJ Hurley ever be able to beat you in a three-point shooting contest? Uh, if I'm if I'm on my deathbed before TJ, then yeah. <laughs> can you dunk? I can, but I haven't done it in about a year, so I'm, I'm not sure anymore. Have you ever dunked in a game? 
No. no High school action. either? No live action. Okay. No. I, I got some off-the-court dunk vids for you, though, if you want them. I'll have put them out on social media when the season's end. I'd like to see them. Um, not including college, who's the best player you ever played against growing up? High school, AAU, who's the guy? Mm, long list of people, but I would say probably during my EYBL run with Rose City Rebels, uh, Jalen LeCue played with, uh, I want to say, New York Renaissance. They were pretty good. And he, was, he was that guy. Who's the – Biggest name in Aaron Deloney's phone? Any NBA guys floating in there? Big, big time college guys will know. Uh, Lamb, obviously with the Warriors. <laughs> Mike James played in the league for a while. Overseas pro, probably one of those guys. All right. Finally, I'll get you out of here on this. You can tell me the truth on this, but every time, you know, since you started this run, you know, maybe a month ago of kind of really getting hot again. Whenever you get hot. I refer to you on social media as opening night Aaron because it reminds me of opening night. Is that a cool nickname or is that, should I not be doing that? Oh, no, I like it. I like it. Whatever you, whatever you think. I like, I like it a lot. All right. So we'll stick with opening night Aaron and hopefully we're tweeting it out a few more times on Friday afternoon as the Catamounts take on, uh, take on Marquette 245 on Friday. AD man safe travels to Columbus. Best of luck. We'll be rooting for you and uh, we'll catch up again at some point. Cool. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. There goes Aaron Deloney live from the gym. So practice was over. Guys must have been getting some extra shots up. Uh, you know, just a lot of good stuff there from Aaron Deloney. I, and I really did enjoy what John Becker had to say about him on Saturday because Deloney is not somebody that has been talked about enough. So that's why I specifically wanted to ask Becker about him, right? Dylan Penn gets talked about. Matt Verretto's story gets talked about. Finn Sullivan's the player of the year. Robin Duncan is the leader. They all get talked about. But Deloney has kind of gone underreported on lately. So I was really glad to hear all the praise that John Becker heaped on him. Talked about his toughness. I mean, you heard what he's playing through there with his mouth, getting an hour of sleep here the week of the championship. That's impressive. The slight frame constantly being, uh, you know, beaten up, the wear and tear on his body. Becker recognizes all he plays through. And then also, man, I, I just, I love the mental fortitude. As somebody who let things get to him a lot mentally, I can appreciate when people are able to battle through and not let stuff break them, right? Like, I was weak mentally. That's why I've gotten so into sports psychology. Aaron Deloney clearly is not weak mentally. And guys who aren't, guys who have that mental toughness built in, that impresses me. I mean, look, scores 32 on opening night. That's why I called him opening night Aaron. 32 on opening night. Then he goes to the bench. No biggie. I'll roll with the punches. He's 5 for 27 from 3 over a stretch of, you know, 4 or 5 games or whatever to start conference play. No worry. Keep battling. Keep grinding. And then all of a sudden, don't try to do too much. And now he's a a double-digit point threat every night. And he ends the year 6th man of the year for the second consecutive season. And then Becker went out and said, like, he's so smart that he's actively coaching on the court in the games. Even when he's not playing, they're looking at him for some guidance and knowledge. He's calling plays and he's helping run the offense. Like that's impressive stuff. And John Becker values him both as a player and as a leader and as an additional coach or a set of eyes on the floor. Man, that's high praise. And uh, I enjoy talking to Aaron Deloney 
as well. This is the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV, AM and FM, and WDEVradio.com. That interview will be available, already is available, I'm told, on our podcast channel, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at WDEVradio.com. We'll deviate from UVM for a bit. It is the start of the NFL's legal tampering period. What has happened? What are we hearing? What's up with Aaron Rodgers? We'll break down some of that for you next on the Brady Farkas Show on DEV. The Brady Farkas Show now has an interactive text line, so reach out now at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. In Brady Farkas Show brought to you by Fecto Homes here on WDEV AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Let's deviate from what's happening in the NF, or, uh, in the uh, NCAA tournament, both UVM men and women. Let's move over to what's happening in the NFL. So today is the start of what is called the legal tampering period. And what this means is that free agency officially begins on Wednesday. But starting today, teams can enter into agreement with players so basically we are seeing a lot of deals that are being reported today none of them are official so yes things can change and yes physicals can be failed and yes somebody else can swoop in at the 11th hour but by and large what you see happening today and what you see being reported today is going to be what gets finalized on wednesday so there's a bunch of players that have changed teams. We'll give you some of the overall storylines you need to know right now, though. One, the Denver Broncos are fortifying their offensive line. They've gotten multiple starting caliber offensive linemen for Sean Payton, their new head coach, and Russell Wilson, their quarterback. They want to make life easier for Russ. They've gotten multiple offensive linemen, including Mike McGlinchey, formerly of the 49ers. The Chiefs are doing the same thing. The world champion Chiefs are doing the same thing for Patrick Mahomes. They went and got Jawan Taylor of Jacksonville, an offensive lineman. They're said to be in on trade talks for Laramie Tunzel as well. Remember, he has been with the Houston Texans. The 49ers, they continue to just add strength on strength. They've gotten even better on the defensive line, getting Javon Hargrave, a guy who had been with the Eagles. That's a group that already had Nick Bosa, uh, Kinlaw, Eric Armstead. So they are just a uh, beast up front there in that front seven. The 49ers certainly look like they can be really good yet again in the NFC. As for the Patriots, they haven't made a lot of moves, but what they have done has been fairly significant. They signed Jonathan Jones to a two-year deal, and they traded away Jonu Smith to the Atlanta Falcons. So in keeping Jones, the Patriots have helped solidify their defensive backfield. It doesn't make it great, but it does help solidify it. So the team lost Devin McCourty. Now they don't have another significant loss at defensive back. They bring back Jones. There's now less to do for them in the defensive backfield. And trading Jonu Smith is just the admission of a big whiff, right? A couple of years ago in free agency, we thought that adding Jonu Smith, among others, was going to be big for this Patriots offense, and it did not turn out to be that way. The Patriots paid John U. Smith $27 million 
for 55 catches. He got nearly $1 million for every two catches he had in a Patriots uniform. He only had one receiving touchdown. It was a massive swing and a miss. What does it mean otherwise? I don't know exactly, right? The Patriots could always draft a tight end so they could sign a tight end so they could still maybe have two tight end stuff. But, you know, as of right now, they have lost an offensive piece and they will need that to be replaced. So Jonu Smith moving on to Atlanta. Speaking of Atlanta, they're making some big moves. They went out and got Jonu Smith. They also went and got free agent safety, the best on the market in Jesse Bates. So that is really, really good uh, for Atlanta as they look to come up again in the AFC South or in the NFC South, excuse me. So uh, let's see. Patrick Peterson has signed a two-year contract with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Jamel Dean, a defensive back, is back in Tampa on a four-year deal. Really, the other thing you need to know is that the Eagles are losing a lot of pieces. Hargrave is gone. They lost Marcus Epps to safety. They've lost more pieces than that as well. We told you all along the Eagles were going to have a hard time replicating their Super Bowl run, and now you're seeing why, right? Not only did they have impeccable health over the course of the regular season and playoffs, they had all 22 starters from opening day healthy for the Super Bowl. That doesn't happen. They also had a ton of veteran free agents, and a lot of them now are leaving. So that Eagles team that went to the Super Bowl is now being gutted by other teams in free agency. So big losses for the Eagles. The other big news today, really the biggest news as I bury the lead here, is on the quarterback market. Jimmy Garoppolo signs a three-year deal with the Las Vegas Raiders. Mike White, formerly of the Jets, he signs a two-year deal to back up Tua with the Dolphins. Jared Stidham, formerly of the Patriots, he signs a deal two years to go back up Russell Wilson in Denver. Um, And then there's the Aaron Rodgers news which right now is no news. Let's kind of work through this here. Jimmy Garoppolo going to the Raiders is a move that I like. I like Jimmy Garoppolo more than most. I believe Aaron Rodgers was the only clear upgrade from Derek Carr, but if you're not going to get Aaron Rodgers and you're going to and you're moving on from Carr, Jimmy Garoppolo was the next best guy on the market as far as I'm concerned. 3 years, 67 million dollars or so, so it's less money overall than they would have had to pay Carr, so you save a little bit of money there that helps Garoppolo has been to a Super Bowl that helps perception wise he's worked with McDaniels before and he's got a lot of weapons offensively we talk about limited quarterbacks needing help offensively needing help around them well Devontae Adams Darren Waller Hunter Renfro Josh Jacobs there's a lot of help there around Jimmy Garoppolo so if you're not going to get Aaron Rodgers then I consider Jimmy Garoppolo to be a relatively nice consolation prize. Do I think he's as good as Derek Carr? I think they're very, very similar. But he has the McDaniels relationship. He has help around him. He's a little bit cheaper, so you can go and get more help around him in theory. So if I were a Raiders fan, I would be looking at this going, Aaron Rodgers was the best play. Jimmy Garoppolo is probably the next best play. So... I think the Raiders will be in playoff contention with a healthy Jimmy Garoppolo, but I do not think they are a Super Bowl caliber team. Uh, the Aaron, the the Jets are in a very very tenuous position here. Aaron Rodgers is holding the New York Jets hostage because let's look at what's happening here. Aaron Rodgers has not even decided if he wants to play yet. Now, 
We have seen reports that a trade to the Jets is very, very close, but we don't have an official report on that. The Jets are waiting for Aaron Rodgers. They have Jimmy Garoppolo is gone. They have missed out on him. They did not get Derek Carr. They missed out on him. They missed out on both of those players because they are waiting for Aaron Rodgers to give them an answer. Heck, even Mike White, their guy who they had a year ago, he is now gone as well. So you can't even just pivot back to him. So now what the Jets are down to is Aaron Rodgers or Zach Wilson again. One would be a home run. The other would be a colossal disaster. If Aaron Rodgers decides to get traded to the Jets, then all is well. If Aaron Rodgers says he wants to go back to the Packers, the Jets are screwed. If Aaron Rodgers says he wants to retire, the Jets are screwed. So the Jets are going all in on Rodgers, and if they don't get him, they are left with nothing. They are left with probably having to try to draft a quarterback and do it all over again, or Zach Wilson, or making a trade for somebody else who you know, might be a backup somewhere. Not a good position to be in if you're the New York Jets. Speaking of the Jets and quarterbacks, former Jets quarterback Sam Darnold, he signed a deal with uh, the San Francisco 49ers and what was a very interesting decision by me, or, or by them, I should say, interesting to me. Now, Darnold, does he just want proximity to Kyle Shanahan for a year and he gets rebuilt and now he's a free agent next year at a relatively young age still? Maybe. Does... Do the 49ers trade Trey Lance to somebody and Sam Darnold and Brock Purdy are their quarterbacks? Maybe. Is Brock Purdy going to be out a couple of weeks into the season and Darnold is just there to battle for the starting job weeks one through three? Maybe. I don't know what this one's about. But Darnold played uh, with the Panthers recently, had some success, not a ton. If anybody can fix him, it's probably Kyle Shanahan, but we don't know exactly where this is going for Sam Darnold and with the 49ers. Baker Mayfield is still out there as well. We've heard rumors of him being interested of uh, or of Tampa being interested in him. He could also be a fit for the Jets, I presume, if uh, nothing happens there for Aaron Rodgers. So we'll see what happens there. But uh, all right, that's where we're at. I, I guess I like the Jimmy G move as far as as far as far uh, you know the Raiders are concerned. Uh We'll talk about this, though. The Miami Dolphins took another big swing over the weekend. We'll tell you what they did and how it affects the Patriots. That's next on the Brady Farkas Show, brought to you by Fecto Home. Think you know sports better than Brady does? Text in with your thoughts at 802-585-3026. Now it's back to the Brady Farkas Show on WDEV AM, FM, and WDEVradio.com. Welcome back in. Brady Farkas Show right here on WDEV, AM and FM and WDEVradio.com. Brought to you by Fecto Homes. The Miami Dolphins yesterday acquired Jalen Ramsey. Remember him, the all-pro defensive back? They got him in a deal for the uh, or from the Los Angeles Rams. They also just went and got a, uh, a new linebacker as well uh, on a two-year, 11-year, uh, two year $11 million deal David Long pretty good linebacker as well people are high on that move the Dolphins have made more moves Dan Orlovsky of ESPN on what this does for them legit AFC title contenders if they stay healthy and the AFC we know is absolutely loaded um, I think the reality is this when Tua was healthy last year 
This was the best pass offense in football. He averaged 8.9 yards per attempt, 13.7 yards com per completion. Those both statistically led the NFL. Uh, I mean, just for more context, their offense, when he was healthy, playing quarterback, 6.7 yards per play. The Chiefs, led by Patrick Mahomes, averaged 6.4. So Dan Orlovsky says this move for Jalen Ramsey, and now there's the move for Long, makes them AFC title game contenders. Here is my question. Why is every team in the NFL, it seems, willing to take big swings except the Patriots? Somebody answer that for me. Every contender in the NFL seems willing to take big swings and to go for it except the New England Patriots. I just want to know why that is. And when you dig down even more to the bedrock of it, why do teams who have a quarterback on a rookie deal like the Patriots, why are they able to go for it and willing and the Patriots are not? Look, look around the landscape of the NFL and look at what is happening. The Miami Dolphins still have Tua on a rookie deal. They are all in. That's where the Patriots should be, and they're not. And that's frustrating as all get out to me. Right? The Dolphins have a quarterback making no money. So what do they do? Xavier Howard's got a deal. And Tyreek Hill's got a deal. And we're going to trade for Bradley Chubb last year. And now we're going to go out and we're going to go make these moves. We're going to go get Ramsey. The, the Dolphins are going for it. Rookie quarterback deal means you can build talent around him, and they are doing it. And as a result, they are pushing the Patriots further down the conversation, and the Patriots appear willing and content to just let it happen. The 49ers now have unloaded Jimmy Garoppolo's contract. They've got rookie quarterback money with Brock Purdy and with Trey Lance. So what do they do? Let's go load up the defense even more. Let's go get Javon Hargrave. Let's trade for Christian McCaffrey and his big deal because we know we're not going to have Jimmy G's money anymore. These teams with rookie quarterback salaries are all in, and the Patriots are not. And that is a problem. Look around the AFC. Who are we now confident the Patriots are better than? That's a serious question because they're not better than Kansas City in the West. I don't believe they're better than Vegas in the West, and Vegas beat them last year, and I don't believe they're better than the Chargers. Maybe they're better than Denver, but Denver now with Sean Payton and now this better offensive line, I would say that's close. I'll give the Patriots the benefit of the doubt. I'll say they're better than Denver. In the AFC North, they're not better than Cincy. They're not better than Baltimore as long as Lamar Jackson's there. They're probably not better than Cleveland with Deshaun Watson now with a full season and a normal offseason. They're probably still better than Pittsburgh. So we're at two. I would say they're better than Tennessee. They're better than Indy. And they're better than Houston. And they're worse than Jacksonville. And then they're the worst team in their division. So right now the Patriots are what? Like 11th or 12th in the AFC? No thank you. Teams with rookie quarter. Look at what Philly did last year. Let's go sign Ndamukong Sue. Let's get Linval Joseph. Let's go make the move for Robert Quinn. Let's go trade for A.J. Brown. When you have a quarterback on a rookie deal, you are supposed to take swings. You are supposed to take shots, and the Patriots are not. And as a result, they are being pushed further and further and further out of the conversation. Now, the Patriots tried to go and spend their way out of problems 
a couple of years ago, but they clearly identified the wrong players or didn't know how to use them, right? Nelson Aguilar is not A.J. Brown. And, uh, I mean, Jonu Smith did not end up to be a Christian McCaffrey-style impact. These guys that were supposed to hit are not the players we're talking about. No one the Patriots got two years ago is Jalen Ramsey. No one the Patriots got two years ago is Christian McCaffrey. Matthew Judon was excellent. I'll give you that. But beyond that, they haven't found the right guys. No no one they've targeted is Tyreek Hill. Why can every team take these shots and the Patriots cannot? It's very, very frustrating. Or why don't the Patriots do it? Okay, The Patriots have done nothing today with the exception of bring back Jonathan Jones, which was big, and then trade away a player in John U. Smith. Ralph says, I was wondering if you would, or Ray, excuse me, I was wondering if you would mention Ramsey. You are speaking my language. I don't feel it was all good for us. That being said, I wanted him traded, but it's not enough. You had the Bills interested in the Dolphins. The Rams did not do well on that trade. Uh, I guess I think Ray must be a Rams fan. I guess that's the question that I'm thinking. So, um, yeah, well, I don't think it's a good trade at all for the Rams. I mean, to get only get a third-round pick for an All-Pro, that to me is no bueno, and I'm sure there's still a cap hit there on his deal but yeah the rams just got worse like the rams are clearly retooling they've lost ramsey they've lost bobby wagner they've lost robert woods who even though he's hurt a lot of the year like the rams don't look to be very good right now we still have the draft we still have more free agency but the rams don't look to be very good but as for the patriots they are they are fighting an uphill battle right now and if if the jets get aaron Rodgers, they are exponentially better than the patriots as well so none of this is good and everybody who has a rookie quarterback deal seems to have a bottomless pit of money except for the Patriots who appear to be holding their marbles very, very close to their chest. It's very frustrating here to see the Patriots essentially sitting out of all of these big moves. The NFL has changed. You now need to take shots. It worked for the Eagles with A.J. Brown. Miami, if Tua doesn't get hurt, they probably at least get to the playoffs. The Raiders had Devontae Adams. Now, they were in their own way a lot last year, but every team has taken shots, and the Patriots aren't. Other big things to watch for tonight is going to be an Aaron Rodgers resolution, potentially, and Austin Eckler, who wants to get traded. Uh, He wants out of uh, Los Angeles with the Chargers. We'll see if they actually do it. I want to thank Aaron Deloney of the UVM men's basketball team for being with us. Uh, That interview is already up on our podcast channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and WDEVradio.com. Thanks to him. We're going to have probably two interviews tomorrow, much more as we get ready for both UVM men and women in their NCAA tournament runs. Jazz with George Thomas is coming up next. He's on for two hours, 7 o'clock until 9 o'clock. Our full show podcast will be posted again shortly. We look forward to that being out there. And appreciate everybody on social media who's followed along recently. I finally got to 2,000 Twitter followers. It's been like six years in the making, and I finally got to 2,000. So, mama, we made it. Jazz with George Thomas is next, and then I on the World with John Batchelor. Go download the Brady Farkas Show podcast, and I will see you tomorrow.